Well, I was just telling my guests that we rare, that this might be the rare show. We don't have a technical glitch. Apparently, my music's not working. So, welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the air, on the streets, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series, and I'll be your host for as long as it takes, or as, for as long as my voice lasts tonight. My guest tonight, Paul D. Marks, is the Seamus and McCavity Award-winning author of White Heat and Broken Windows, mystery thrillers that take place in the 1990s Los Angeles and touch upon social issues of that time, which are still in the news today. Publishers Weekly calls White Heat a taut crime yarn and says of Broken Windows that fans of downbeat P.I. fiction will be satisfied with Seamus Award-winning winner Marks' solid sequel to 2012's White Heat. Paul's short story, Windward, won the McCavity Award and has been selected for the anthology Best American Mystery Stories of 2018, edited by a couple of um, stalwarts, Louise Penny and Otto Penzler. Welcome, Paul D. Marks. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. Man, you didn't even get to hear the music. Suppressing. You know, I'm really bummed about that, but I'm yeah, sure I... it wasn't the Beatles, so it's okay. No, it's $20, $21 for the bumper music. Hey, I've always wondered it. Yeah, I know, but I liked it. Always wondered about this. Um, why D and what does it stand for? It, it, you know, it's just a middle initial to, um, you know, separate me from all the other Paul Marxes that are on the Internet. I did a search, mm. and, uh, you know, I didn't think it was a very common name, but it is. I'd rather not well, say what it stands for, but it's just, you know, <laughs> middle initial. Stands for dumb. I don't think so, but it, it has a it has a certain rhythm to it. Paul D. and uh, I didn't know there were that many Paul Marks either. <laughs> I know there is one Matt Coyle, some Australian dude that uh, writes has written one graphic novel, and for some reason um, his stuff gets put together with mine on. Um, wow, that's crazy. His stuff gets put together on mine on Goodreads, and actually on Wikipedia they have a thing on him with my picture. But anyway. Well, that's about me. Par for the course, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> as long as Mark. you know he he did good stuff, and maybe some people will get turned on to you because they meant to look for him, then you're okay. Well, I got to tell you, I hope he's not listening, but his reviews have been dragging me down. Anyway, um, <laughs> back back to you. 2018 has been a pretty good year for you. Uh, Broken Windows, the sequel, as we said before, to the Seamus Award-winning White Heat, came out. Coast to Coast, Private Eyes, from Sea to Shining Sea. The anthology you co-edited was nominated for the Anthony Award. And your story in it, Winward, was nominated for a Derringer and won the McCavity. And as I said earlier, was chosen for the Best American Stories, edited by a couple of uh, heavyweights. Has this, this year, it's a pretty damn good year, do you think this has just been a culmination of all the hard work you've put in over the years? Or has something changed in your approach to writing? Anything you, can, anything you could put your finger on? You know, there's nothing I can really put my finger on. I always try to do the best that I can and write stuff that, you know, I hope people will like and enjoy. Um, I think maybe over time I've gotten a little bit more name recognition, so maybe that helps a little bit. But what's funny is that I thought 2018 was going to be a year where, uh, you know, I just kind of quietly slipped by under the radar and then all this good stuff started happening, so it went totally opposite of what I was expecting this year. I'm very gratified, and I should also say that you have a story in Coast to Coast Private Eyes, 
which is a really good story and was nominated. And, um, you know, I, I just don't know. I just try to do the best I can. I want to write entertaining stories. Some, some are purely entertainment and some are entertainment with a little more edge to deal with real-life situations like the novels that deal with issues of uh, race and immigration in the 1990s, which are still playing out today. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your latest novel, Broken Windows. Well, Broken Windows is a sequel to White Heat. White Heat came out in 2012, and Broken Windows just came out in September. So there's a long gap between them, not because I wanted it that way, but um, the Broken Windows was actually done shortly after White Heat, but it was tied up with an agent who did nothing with it for reasons that uh, I won't go into here. Uh, so I, I couldn't do anything with it for years. But finally, I got out of that situation, so it just came out. And both novels, uh, the main characters are a guy named Duke Rogers and his partner, Jack Riggs. And Duke, in some ways, considers himself a screw-up, or as he says, a fuck-up. He screwed up his life in a lot of ways. He screwed up his marriage. He screwed up uh, his in the service. He screwed up a case in White Heat, which is what sets White Heat off uh, in terms of the plot. In Broken Windows, you don't have to have read White Heat to read Broken Windows because there's a little bit of filler that catches people up if they haven't read White Heat. Mm -hmm. But in Broken Windows, it takes place in 1990 which is the time of a notorious proposition in California, a ballot proposition called Prop 187, which uh, was very anti-illegal alien. And as we know, a lot of that stuff is in the news today, every day. So what happens in Broken Windows is the opening is kind of a teaser. A woman climbs to the top of the Hollywood sign and jumps to her death. So who is she and why did she do that? It's a great teaser, too. Um, <laughs> thank you. Then uh, Duke gets involved in a different case um, where there's a housekeeper down the street named Marisol who is undocumented, and her brother is undocumented. Her brother gets murdered. And in Venice, which is a very cool place, a disbarred lawyer who's living in kind of a flea bag in Venice by the beach, and he puts an ad in a local paper that says, we'll do anything for money. So the yeah, house down the street gets Duke involved in the case, you know, who killed her brother and why, and then how do these other threads of the lawyer and the woman who jumped from the Hollywood sign tie in? And all of that is woven in and around the immigration debate that was happening then. Right, and still happening. Um, I have a set of questions here, but something you said... Um spark something in me. Duke thinks he's a, a, a mess up. We can say fuck up on a podcast if we want. Um, but he's he's actually uh, in fairly decent demand as a private investigator. Is it did the, the public not see that he's a mess up or is that just internal? Well, some of it is internal. Some of it is in his backstory that we get a little bit of. But what happens at the beginning of White Heat is that a client comes to him and wants to hire him. And 
you know, this was kind of in the days when the Internet was just barely getting off the ground. And, the, the, you know, so but Duke knows that he can uh, find the person that the client wants found pretty easily because he has a friend in the DMV. He goes to her. She gives him the information. He gives it to the client. And then he reads in the paper a couple of days later that the woman that he found for the client uh, has been murdered. But right. because it was such an easy thing, he never got paperwork on the client. He just took cash. So now he's got to find the client. And the way to do that is to find him by backtracking through the victim. So he, I guess we can say it, fucked up that case really bad. But most people don't know that. But right. he does, and it affects him in the way he does it. But in solving that case, which becomes a fairly prominent case, he gets a reputation as a good private eye, so he does become in demand, but he knows what happened. But, he, you know, he right. inadvertently helped lead to her death. He feels remorse for that, and he wants to make amends for it, which is why he finds the killer on his own. And he continues to make amends in one way or another. That's what I think makes him a, a interesting uh, character. Is that here he's he's a hero to the public, but in actuality he feels he's not at all. In fact, um, kind of the opposite. Um, so this is back in LA's uh, 1990s. Why did you choose to write uh, about this period and the subject matter for both novels? Well, I think originally the idea for why he probably came to me around that time right. um, set in and around the Rodney King riot, and it was bubbling up around, you know, inside of me for a long time. Um, I, I also wanted to write, it's a private eye story, it's a thriller, it's a roller coaster ride, but it also deals with issues of race, racism, and things like that. And I wanted to write about that kind of stuff in the context of a mystery thriller, but I thought that setting it in the past would give us a good prism to kind of view things that are happening today, but not so directly. It gives us a little bit of perspective. And Duke's partner, Jack, is one of the most unpolitically correct persons you'll ever meet. But what I like to say about Jack is that he says the wrong thing, but he does the right thing. And I've found that um, a lot of people really like him as a character, and, and I, I find that interesting because I was a little concerned about doing him before the novel was released. Yeah. Yeah, he's an interesting character, and I, and, uh, I think he pretty summed it up uh, for uh, Broken Windows, at least, in, in saying the wrong thing and doing the right thing. He certainly does that. Um, so, Duke... Where did you get the – first of all, Duke Rogers is a great P.I. name. It'd be a great um, mystery um, novelist name. Where did uh, Duke come from? Where did you get the idea for him? Well, the Duke's name, he's named after John Wayne. His, his real name is uh, Marion, which is John Wayne's real name, or some people claim. There's been different claims as to what John Wayne's real name is. So oh, I always thought it was Marion. Well, that's what I always thought, but I've seen other people say it was not, but I, I go with that. Now, hmm. if you're a guy, do you really want to go around being called Marion? <laughs> that's how if I was Duke, John, John Wayne's size, I wouldn't worry about it. Well, that's true, but Duke is not John Wayne's size. But right. 
Um, because of the John Wayne connection, he got the nickname Duke because that was also John Wayne's nickname. So that's where the Duke comes from. That's where the name comes from, but where did the character come from for you? Well, the character, you know, the character is based somewhat on me and based somewhat on people that I know or that I've come across. You know, there's a little bit of me in every character I write, I guess. And um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, me and Duke and Jack and, and all the other characters, the peripheral characters, too. But there's also people that I know, people that I've come across. Um, you know, as writers, we're like sponges. We soak up everything we see. I mean, if anybody yeah. talks to a writer, they should beware that, uh, yeah. you know, whatever they say and do is going to end up in a book sometimes. So, you know, Duke is a little bit of me, a little bit of everything, just life, philosophy, everything, you know, and, and in, in a sense also a tribute to the classic PIs like uh, Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe, or Ross McDonald, Lou Archer, people like that. And, uh, you know, I, I really like Raymond Chandler. I, you know, to me, he's in a class by himself. So there's probably a little bit of a homage to uh, Marlowe in there, too. I'm not familiar with Raymond Chandler. He writes uh, detective stories? No, he wrote esoteric phil- philosophy <laughs> that very few people read. Right, exactly. Um, let me just give the call-in number. It's you want to call in and ask Paul. <coughs> excuse me, I knew that cough was coming. Better questions than I can. Shouldn't be too hard. Number is three four seven six six. I'm sorry, <coughs> I gotta go on a jack here for a sec. Hold on. <coughs> Good timing. Three four seven six three three nine six zero nine is a call-in number. Okay. I'm trying to catch my breath here. Is there another uh, Duke book in the works? Actually, there is. Um, the publisher, which is Down and Out Books, and Eric Campbell uh, asked me to do a Duke Three, and uh, that also takes place in the 1990s and uh, weaves in and out of another real situation that was happening then, but I don't want to give it away. But, yeah, Duke, Jack are back, or they will be back. I'm uh, working on it, and... There's no publication date, but uh, it's definitely in process and a lot farther along than I thought it would be. Would you have written another Duke book if uh, Eric hadn't asked you to? I think so. Yeah, I like the characters and I like the milieu. I like and It's kind of fun, you know, writing books set in the recent past, although at the same time it's actually harder. I was thinking about this because I wrote a book set in the 1940s that's mm-hmm. not out yet. And when I was writing the 1940s book, you know, things were very different back then. So, you know, you're not tempted to put in something like a cell phone. But in the 1990s, you had cell phones, but they were very different than the cell phones we have today and other technology. So it's actually really harder to write stuff set in the 90s than it would be in the 1940s or the 1840s. And... Um, you really got to be careful, you know, like what version of Windows was being used. Or was Windows even out yet? You know, was it still DOS-based systems and things like that, you know? And I like doing the research, and besides research, it gives me a to avoid writing, and uh, that's always good. Yeah. 
Well, you said uh, I can't even pronounce the word, but you said milieu. Um, and there's, if anybody knows, I'm, well, I'm sure thousands of listeners that are or hundreds at least that are listening know Paul, and at least are friends on Facebook. And you always have a lot of classic LA um, photos you bring out, and you always give a little history. And um, in your books as well, there's there's little nice little areas of LA that people may know and learn more about, or, or may not know and learn something about. And I think that's really cool. The, uh, the LA is certainly prominent in um, your fiction. Right, that was well, a question. That was just a statement. <laughs> well, but you can elaborate on it. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I I like LA. I, I have a love hate relationship with yeah. Los Angeles. I guess. I was born here. My family on my mom's side goes back a ways here. And um, I like to say that when I was a kid, it was still Raymond Chandler's L.A. You know, the city hadn't changed all that much in terms of all these gleaming new high-rises and stuff. I think at the time, City Hall was probably the tallest building, or one of them anyway. And um, it looked like what you see in the old movies, you know, uh, with Humphrey Bogart and those people. So I grew up in that, and I watched it change, and I like some of the changes. I don't like some of the changes, Um, but it was a good place to grow up, you know. And the other thing about Los Angeles that I like is it's kind of the end of the road. You know, the whole West Coast is the end of the road. There's no place to go after here but in the ocean. So people come here to reinvent themselves, and a lot of people are not successful at that, and that's some of the people that I like writing about, too. The end of the road where dreams come to die. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So talk a little bit about your McCavity award-winning short story, Windward, which... um, I was happy for you, except I was rooting for one other story. I was very happy for you. And <laughs> what other story would that be? Never mind. <laughs> um, Windward is the name of a street in Venice, California, Venice by the beach. And Venice is one of the main tourist attractions in the Los Angeles area. Sometimes I wonder why, but it's a very <laughs> colorful place. And I like Venice. I lived in Venice for a while. Um, And the story came about because, as you mentioned earlier, Andy McAleer and I uh, were editing an anthology called Coast to Coast Privatized from Sea to Shining Sea. And I got the Los Angeles area as my area to write about. And I chose to write about the Venice area because I thought it was colorful and fun. So the PI in that story, Jack Lassen, he has a little office on Windward Avenue, hence the name of the story. I know that's a big word, hence. Um, <laughs> it is for me. <laughs> well, it is for me, too. But, you know, it's one of those words you're just dying to use sometimes. Anyway, so Windward is the name of one of the main streets in Venice, and it dead ends into the ocean or into, you know, the beach. And um, Jack Lassen has a private eye office, little storefront office on Windward. It's all colonnaded there. If you've seen pictures of Venice with all the columns and colonnades, or if you've seen Touch of Evil, that was shot down there. Um, And underneath his office is a 1950s or 60s bomb shelter where he lives. 
So I thought that was just kind of fun. I kind of based that on a guy that I knew that lived in a bomb shelter. It wasn't as fancy or as big as the one Jack lives in. But it was an interesting situation to go visit this guy in this backyard bomb shelter that he rented from, you know, whoever lived in the main house. And, um, you know, then I, you know, I had to figure out what kind of story I wanted to do. And I figured, well, Venice, you know, Malibu's up the coast, Hollywood. So what happens to kick off the story is a well-known producer walks into uh, Jack's office and hires him to find his wife that's missing, and of course there's a lot more to the story than initially meets the eye. Absolutely. Um, so obviously you, you mentioned Coast to Coast, the anthology you edited or co-edited. Um, did you enjoy the editing process? How did you get How did you get uh, hooked into it? Was it your idea? Was it your uh, partner's idea? It was actually Andy was working on an anthology, and he brought me into it uh, to co-edit with him. Um, yeah, I liked it. It's it's fun. It has its frustrating moments, like any aspect of writing or publishing. Um, you know, you always want to include more people than you have room for. You know, you feel bad about people that you couldn't uh, have in it. Um, but it's it's an anthology where we invited people to be in it as opposed to just letting people submit because that I would not have the patience for, you know, reading 200 submissions. Um, and it was fun. I like to, I, I like, you know, the editing process in the sense that as a writer, I feel sometimes editors want to take your voice away. And so as an editor, I want to give authors their voice and give them a lot more leeway than some editors do. And so I like that aspect of it where you can let the author breathe. I'm not saying, you know, we didn't have some changes that we asked for some things, but overall I like to, you know, keep it more open, more broad. And it was fun. And, and you know, that anthology it was mind-blowing to me how many award nominations it got, not just for me, but for several people in it, including yourself. Right. And um, it was just, I think, if I remember correctly, it got 14 award nominations, uh, wow. and of win, and two stories selected from it, including Windward for the Best American Mystery Stories of 2018. So that was truly gratifying. I had no idea it was going to go, you know, like that, but it, it was wonderful. It was very gratifying that um, it got that much recognition. It was, that was mind-blowing, i got to tell you. Well, it's fun to be a part of it, and um, obviously there's some heavy hitter short stories, writers you had in there. Um, this is something our listeners may not know, um, that, but most other writers do, about you, is that you wrote for Hollywood before you started writing crime fiction. Um, what did you write? What did you do? Well, mostly what I did was script doctoring. You know, I don't know how familiar people are with the way Hollywood works, but if you go to a movie and you see, you know, the written by credit and it says by X and Y or something like that, there's usually several people who don't get screen credit that have worked on the property or the project. And um, that's where I came in. I was one of those kind of invisible people, and to this day my dad cannot figure out 
uh, how I earned a living for 20 years uh, doing that. Um, it had its moments of fun and a lot of moments of big egos and pain. One story I tell a lot about is that I was home talking to a producer on the phone one day, and I'm screaming, well, talking is not the right word. I'm screaming at him at the top of my lungs. And uh, I put it on the speaker so that my wife could hear that I wasn't the only one speaking. <laughs> the, the bottom line is that he, uh, he threatened to send his friends in the Mossad, which is like the Israeli CIA right. or something, uh, send his friends in the Mossad after me because he didn't like what I was doing on the script or something. So I'm still looking <laughs> over my shoulder for that. Um, Did that, mo- that movie get made? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, they go, they go through so many name changes sometimes, and once you're kind of off of it, um, you know, unless there's royalties, which often you don't get, and, uh, depending on how far down the scale of writers you are. It, it's a very complicated process, but uh, I don't think that's it probably became a movie about the Mossad. Um, Could be. Actually, it was a movie about Nazis. <laughs> oh, well, the opposite. How uh, did you get started? How did you get started in something like that, where you become a script doctor? Were you, uh, you were a screenwriter at some point? Well, I was trying to break into screenwriting, yeah. And um, what happened is there was a producer, a well-known producer, who was looking for somebody to rewrite a script that he already had a draft of. And I think a friend of mine turned me on to his... It's it's hard to remember the details at this point. I think what happened is a friend of mine turned me on to the development person at his company. So I went in and I met with her and I, I told her how I would change the script. And she liked what I said, so she put me you know, in a meeting with the main guy, and he liked what I said. I said, you know, it was a comedy, and I said, I'll turn it into a screwball comedy, like an updated screwball comedy from the 1930s. And Uh I gave some examples of, you know, what I would do, so they hired me. That got me into the Writers Guild. That's the job that got me into the Writers Guild. And um, I went home. I worked on the script. I thought, wow, this is, you know, we all think what we do is great, right? So I thought, this is wonderful. This is, you know, funny and ha-ha and, uh, you know, it's sophisticated and, you know, sent it in to him. He hated it, hated everything I did. Um, And I saw a copy of the next draft of the script that somebody else had done, and the first joke on the first page of the script was a girl peeing in her pants. So I guess that's the kind of humor he thought when I was talking about sophisticated screwball comedy was girls peeing in their pants. So I love that movie. <laughs> There's a lot of them out there. So. But nonetheless, uh, that got me into the Writers Guild and kind of broken into the Hollywood scene. And I actually became good friends with his development person who did like what I did. And she actually got me a lot more work along the way though not for the original producer. Well, I think we can all guess which pays better, but which did you like better, writing uh, for Hollywood or writing uh, crime fiction? 
Well, as you know, Hollywood definitely pays better. I tell people if you, you know, have an ego, you know, don't go into Hollywood because uh, writers are the low people on the right. ladder. But, uh, you do get paid well. Um, I got, you know, kind of frustrated with it, especially because I was kind of stuck in that, you know, you know, where I wasn't getting screen credit. And so I wanted to branch out and have, also in Hollywood, there's a million chefs. Uh, often they spoil the stew. Sometimes they actually improve it, but I think that's the exception rather than the rule. Um, so I wanted to have more control over what I wrote. And, you know, even though in fiction writing there's editors and things like that, you do still have more control. And so I wanted that, and for a while I did both. You know, I had uh, feet in both places. Uh, you know, eventually I transitioned out and, uh, you know, just do uh, fiction writing at this point. Award-winning fiction writing. So talk about your writing process a little bit. Is well, there my- such a thing? <laughs> yeah, there is definitely such a thing. Well, as we know... There's pansters and outliners, and I am not an outliner. I can't stand outlining. I don't think in that kind of linear fashion, I guess. When I was doing the Hollywood thing, sometimes I'd have to write treatments, which is kind of like a prose version of an outline, and I hated it. Um, So my writing process these days, and I will actually be talking about this in Orange County at the Orange County Writers on December 15th, But my process is I often, not always, but often write a very quick and dirty first draft as a screenplay. That's, in essence, my outline. And I call it I let the characters talk and walk. And I do it that way because it's a form that I'm very familiar with, and I have a screenwriting program, obviously, so it makes it easy. Um, But what I do is, you know, I go interior, exterior, wherever, uh, you know, Joe pulls a gun from the drawer and aims it at so-and-so. And And then I put dialogue, you know, the way dialogue is centered in the screenplay. I have very little description. Some of it may not end up in the final work, but it gives me a chance to get to know the characters. And usually the third act, I also try to write it in acts. I try to have a teaser. I try to have act breaks. And um, I usually, in the, in the screenplay draft, the third act is very nebulous. There's, you know, kind of trails mm. off. But the mm-hmm. first two acts, I try to get down, and I, I see who the characters are. I see where it's going. I don't care if it rambles or anything, you know, or if there's typos or anything. It's just something for me to hang the next draft on. So that's my process. And then each draft after that is just fine-tuned. Mhm. And, and at that point, the third act becomes more aware, apparent to you, obviously. Has to. Yeah, and well, part of the reason I, I let the third act Sorry about drop that. because I just uh, I, I get bored and I want to move on to the next. One of the things that you know was an issue for me coming from the screenwriting background is writing description or interior monologue ah. because. Uh, have that in screenplays. You know, in a screenplay, a beach is a beach. You don't describe really much about it. So, you know, my early attempts at writing fiction, people said, oh, this reads like a screenplay. 
but um, hopefully I've gotten better at that. Um, this is a, a question I like to ask uh, of late um, all the authors that come in. Do you have any advice for aspiring writers slash authors? Well, I think, you know, I, I don't think I have anything profound to offer, but I get a lot of people who tell me they've got a great idea. They, you know, think it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread, you know, and they don't have the discipline to actually sit down and work on it. So right. first thing I tell people is you've got to actually sacrifice. In fact, I have a blog that went up today at Seven Criminal Minds that talks just about this. You have to sacrifice. You know, you have to sacrifice yes. for your writing, and, you know, sometimes that means not hanging with friends, not going out, not partying, not watching a movie or going to a movie or whatever it is that you like to do and parking yourself, you know, in front of a computer and, and working. And I think that's the biggest drawback that aspiring people have is that they don't have the discipline to, um, you know, to just park themselves in the chair. And then they should not be frustrated by rejection. We all get rejection. And my attitude, especially when I was starting out, is, you know, if I got rejected, it was like, fuck you, I'll show you, <laughs> you know. So I, it gave me motivation to go back and try harder. And that's another thing, you know, so don't let rejection or some of the people that you deal with, you know, put you off from doing. I'm uh, so glad you mentioned the sacrifice thing because that's something a wise woman, Carolyn Wheat, told me, or actually when I was taking a class from her 17 years ago, I think, uh, um, write, you know, writing novel one, two, and three, that she said, if you're going to be a serious writer, you're going to have to um, sacrifice something. And I kind of thought, you know, whatever. And, uh, I basically have given up golf for about the last 10 years um, because I would play golf on Saturdays and Saturdays I either write all day or I um, go see my writer's group. Um, so that, that is, that's the deal. You do have to sacrifice. And I, I, it's, I'm obviously it's, you know, people know that, but I'm glad you brought it up. So well, I, I think uh, people know it, but they don't know it at the same time. So I think yeah. sometimes it helps to hear like what you were just saying about Carolyn Weed or what I just said a few minutes ago. And, and writing, writing is a truly harsh mistress and takes a lot of time. So it's something no you really have to be dedicated to. Absolutely. And you clearly are. So what is next? I mean, well, we know there's I'm nothing working you're working on, on Duke, Duke Book. Is anything more imminent? Um, I'm also working, you know, I have a, a series of short stories that's been appearing in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, the Ghost of Bunker Hill series. So two of them have come out already. A third one is in, you know, has been bought by them and is uh, scheduled for next year. And I'm working on a fourth one in that series. Um, I'm also, uh, I, I've got this World War II home front mystery that I think I mentioned before about the 1940s. And um, I've got another novel that's actually not set in L.A., it's set in New York, um, that I've been working on off and on in between other things. Um, so there's always something, you know, and then short stories. Oh, and then we're doing another coast-to-coast 
uh, anthology. So we did the original Coast to Coast uh, Murder from Sea to Shining Sea, and then we did the Coast to Coast Private Eyes, and now we're going to be doing another Coast to Coast after the first of the year. So that's also in the offing. So a lot cool. of uh, I, I never lack for things to do. You know, people that say they're bored, I don't understand because there's always something to do. Absolutely. And you're clearly doing a lot. So how can people find you online? Uh, my website is www.pauldmarks.com. I'm also on Facebook. I'm at Twitter. I think my Twitter handle is at Paul D. Marks. And those are the main places you can find me. I blog uh, every other week at Seven Criminal Minds and once or twice a month at Sleuthsayers. I'm all over the place. Pretty easy to find. Yeah, you got to find something to do with your, your free time. Well, <laughs> I want to thank you, Paul, for coming in. And, uh, I, you know, as soon as I get that intro or that my music to work, I'll send you a little... Uh, a little download so you can really get into it like um, well, I do. Well, do. I want to edit it back into the interview. There you go. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and we'll get you on again when your next book comes out. And um, good luck with everything, all your irons in the fire. Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. And as you know, I love your Rick Cahill series. That's oh, not thanks. just yes, because I've told you that, you know, in person. And, uh, you know, so... Hopefully we're a mutual fan, but thank you for Absolutely. You bet. I appreciate you saying that online, to, on the air, too, so everybody else knows. <laughs> anyway, thanks. Well, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. <laughs> thanks, Paul. Okay, so I haven't been on for a couple months, and uh, I don't know if people are happy about that or sad, but I'm going to, starting in, uh, well, actually, the next two weeks, I'm going to be much more consistent with the show. Sometimes life gets in the way, but... Two weeks from now, the show is going to be about me and my new book, um, Wrong Light, which comes out officially December 4th, which is Tuesday. And a friend of mine who kind of helped inspire the book, um, Jeff Dotset, who's spent 25 years in the talk radio business, is going to interview me because the book has a little bit about talk radio in it. So um, I will obviously put stuff on Facebook, and uh, we'll hopefully you'll tune in in two weeks from today, which will be December 14th. So thanks for tuning in. I'm going to try my outro music, which may not work, but I have to tell you this is a copyrighted podcast solely owned by the authors on the air.